Well, our gospel text from this morning comes from the gospel of Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Once again, if you're able, please rise and stand for the hearing of God's holy word. And we read Mark's account of the feeding of the 4,000 in Jesus' name. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he answered, and he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord God, your word is truth. Sanctify us by that truth. Today, as we look at this account from the Gospel of Mark, I pray that you would again show us our sinfulness and how we have fallen short of your glory. Lord, bring us to repentance and strengthen our faith. Point us to Christ and everything he accomplished for us. And by your word, ready us for your service, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our first three readings for today all had a theme connected to them. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's a favorite theme of mine. The theme of all three readings was food. In our Old Testament reading in Genesis chapter 2, we have the creation of man. God doesn't just speak mankind into creation like he does with everything else. Instead, when God created human beings, he got his hands dirty. He formed human beings from the dust of the earth. Luther said on, in his lectures on the book of Genesis, in their first state, he's talking about human beings here, there was a very great difference inasmuch as man was created by a unique counsel and wisdom and shaped by the very finger of God. You see, God took a very special interest in making the crowning jewel of his creation. <clears throat> he made us in his own image. <coughs> Excuse me in the Imagio Dei, which has mostly been lost in our fall into sin, but it's also something that God has promised to restore after Christ returns and all things are made new. After God had formed mankind from the dust, he then breathed life into his lungs. And then God planted a garden in Eden, and he filled it with good things. Moses records here in the book of Genesis that God made every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food to spring up in the Garden of Eden. And those trees, they were all given to human beings to tend and to eat. There was only one thing that was not good by the end of our sermon text, or, or by the end of our Old Testament reading today, and that thing is that Adam was alone. We hear in verse 18 of chapter 2, God saying, it is not good for man to be alone, and then God makes a suitable helper for him. After Eve was made from the rib of Adam, <clears throat> then human beings lacked absolutely 
nothing. You see, God had given them every good gift. They had everything that they needed, and it was right at their fingertips. We know that this all fell apart fairly quickly, as we hear about in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tempted Eve in the form of a serpent. And Adam and Eve took the fruit from the only tree they were commanded not to eat from, believing that they knew better than God, and they fell into sin. After that, God didn't turn his back on human beings because they had sinned, but instead God continued to provide for them. He still loved his creation, though it was fallen. But their sin had consequences. God still provided, but they no longer had everything they needed right at their fingertips. Part of the curse that came with sin was a cursing of everything that was under mankind's dominion, a cursing of the earth. As God proclaims his judgment upon Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you have bread. God would still provide for Adam and Eve. He would still sustain them and their descendants, but it would no longer be easy for them as it was in the Garden of Eden. There would be food, but they would have to work hard for it. And that's the way the world has been ever since. We know that food is not always easy for people to get. Creation has been broken uh, by the curse of sin, just as human beings have been. We see the effects of this curse. Uh, even <clears throat> in a report from the World Health Organization, they released a study in 2019 that said there were 820 million people that didn't have enough food in 2018. To put it in perspective, one in nine people globally were malnourished in 2018. You see, the curse of Eden is still having its effect on the world, and it will continue to do so until Christ returns. The Old Testament lesson, it tells us of God's gracious provision for mankind, but it also tells us of mankind's fall into sin and the cursing of the earth because of it. In our gospel text for today, we had that crowd of 4,000 following Jesus, following him to hear his teachings and see his miracles. As Jesus looked upon this crowd, he had mercy upon them because they'd been following him for so long. This crowd was hungry and had nothing to eat. If Jesus sent them home, they would have fainted along the way. And so Jesus asked his disciples to do something about it. Since they were in the middle of nowhere, the disciples responded by saying, in essence, what can we do? We have no food and there's nowhere to get it for this crowd. So Jesus then asked what's available and it turns out to be just seven small loaves of bread and a, and a couple of fish. It's a meager snack that the disciples found. But Jesus takes it and he blesses it and he gives thanks to the Father for it. And he sets the food out before the crowd. And miraculously, that bread doesn't stop giving. And the fish it continues to feed people. It's just like the oil and the flour that the widow of Zarephath had while she provided for God's prophet. You see, everyone in this crowd is able to eat and not just a bite or a morsel, but they're able to fill their bellies. And not only that, there were seven baskets full of food left over when it was finished. For just a moment, the curse of Eden was reversed for that crowd. See, a couple weeks ago, Gretchen and the kids and I were, 
we're blessed to be able to take some much-needed vacation. And this, this year we found a really, really cool and fairly inexpensive uh, Verbo Airbnb thing in Salt Lake City, Utah. It was, a, it was a really fun trip. It was a great trip. We did a lot of great and exciting things. Salt Lake is full of stuff to do. But also while we were there, there were a couple of little surprises. Surprises like walking into a store called Seagull Books, thinking we were going to do a bit of browsing and maybe find some used books, only to find out that it was a Mormon store. So if we wanted a gigantic painting of the temple, that was the place to be. If we wanted a useful book, not so much. One of the things we were most excited to check out while we were there was a place called the Antelope State Park. And it was a park that sits right on the Great Salt Lake. It was really hot while we were there. It was over 100 every single day. And so a dip in a lake sounded pretty good. Here's a quote about the Antelope State Park. Uh, from the Visit Salt Lake website. The best place to swim or float in the lake is at Antelope Island State Park, where the white Ultic sand beaches provide easy access to the lake without brine flies that are prevalent on other areas of the shoreline. The beach area also has showers to rinse off the salty water. The website also claimed this, floating in the lake is a unique experience because of the high salt content, and it makes it much easier to float. So we were excited to get to the lake, we were excited to cool off, and I especially was excited to see what this really salty water floating was all about. We got up early that day to avoid the crowds, we took the long drive through the Salt Lake City metro, we crossed a crazy long land bridge to get to Antelope Island Park, and we finally arrived at Bridger Bay Beach on Antelope Island. We changed into our swimsuits and we made our way down to the water. Our first surprise was that the easy access to the lake that the Salt Lake City website claimed turned out to be a walk of much more than a mile in deep sand with sharp rocks in it just for fun. It was a slog in the heat. By the time we hit the shoreline, we were ready to jump in. But I don't know if you're aware of this. The first thing that strikes you as you get close to the Great Salt Lake is, is the wonderful smell. The locals, they call it lake stink. It's a bit like rotten eggs, but slightly different, and the smell comes from decaying organic material at the bottom of the lake. The smell's off-putting, but even with that smell, we decided to make our way out into the water. Gretchen, the kids, and I, we walked out there as far as we could handle. The mud at the bottom of the lake was, was slick. It was slippery, and it sucked in your feet and grabbed at you. It sucked you into about mid-calf. And so it made keeping your balance in the lake almost impossible. We tried to walk out deep enough to have a swim. We went 40, 50 yards, maybe even more, into that stinky lake with mud trying to swallow our legs, trying to find deeper water, and it never got more than about 16 inches deep. We were about to give up, and I decided I needed to try and float anyway, and just ended up <laughs> sitting in the mud, which, just so you know, smells a lot worse than the water, <laughs> and is really hard to get off. <laughs> I've got to say, my expectations of what a swimming day in the Great Salt Lake would be like, and what we actually got when we got there, it was pretty different. <laughs> it was shockingly different, in fact. 
Yeah, I imagined a fun lake day like we have when we go to Minnesota, and what we got was a stinky, slimy slog through less than knee-deep water. Not what we wanted. In our gospel text today, we, we heard the story of the feeding of the 4,000, and we've heard this story so many times that it, it fails to surprise us and to shock us anymore. But what Jesus did that day in feeding 4,000 people with just a little bit of bread and a couple of fish, this is far more shocking, far more surprising than our experience at the Great Salt Lake was. Jesus had a crowd of people that was starving. They hadn't eaten for three days. And Jesus has basically nothing to feed them with. And yet he does it anyway. And not only that, there's more food left than there was in the beginning when they're done eating. You see, Jesus, in that moment, he reversed the curse that came at Eden. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had everything they wanted right at their fingertips. Everything they needed was right there. They didn't have the struggles that we have today in trying to grow food and provide for the world's population. Instead, they had it all right at hand. And that's what Jesus did for those people here in Mark's gospel. For just one moment in time, he made things just like they had been in the garden. He set things back to the way they should be for just one point in human history. And that crowd got to experience a taste of heaven. Our last reading for today came from Revelation 19. And there we get to glimpse of the future. And we get to hear about the marriage feast of the Lamb. We get to hear about that final day when Christ returns and judges the living and the dead. <clears throat> and we get to hear about the promise that all who have faith in Christ will be welcomed into our eternal rest to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the new heavens and the new earth. And in that moment, God will set all things right we will return back to the way things were in Eden without suffering and pain and death. That's going to be the day when sin and its curse come to an end forever. That's what's been promised as our eternal reward. You see, on this side of, of glory, as children of Adam and Eve, we suffer with sin and its consequences because we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned against God in thought and in word, and indeed, both by the evil we have done and the good that we have left undone. We could easily page through the Ten Commandments and see how we have broken each and every one of them. And we also live in a sinful and, and fallen world. We can see the effects of sin and evil just by turning on the news, looking out our front doors, or taking a whiff of the Great Salt Lake. We still deal with the curse that sin has brought to this world. It's left everything broken and nothing the way it should be. But this sinful, fallen, and broken world is not all that there is for us who are believers in Christ. Because God has promised that the sacrifice of Christ is enough even for our sin. Christ has paid the price for our sins and full, and so we are made new. And we've been promised life and life eternal with our God in the new heavens and the new earth where sin and its curse are gone forever. We've been promised that we will feast with our God and King at the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And today, again, we get another little foretaste of that because today we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper once again. Holy Communion is a fulfillment of the Passover feast, and it reminds us of God's faithfulness to his people throughout the generations. And it also serves as a promise that God remains faithful to you and I. It points us to everything that Christ accomplished on the cross, and it delivers to us his finished work. As Jesus himself said, this is my body and this is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper also points us ahead to that final day when Christ returns and all those who are in him will be welcomed to the wedding feast of the Lamb and we will feast with our God and King in paradise forevermore. So as you now prepare to come to the Lord's table, come once again confessing your sin. Come confessing all of those ways that you have fallen short of the glory of God and come trusting in what Christ offers there. Come trusting that what you receive there is the true body and true blood of your crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words in this Gospel of Mark as well as what was recorded in Genesis and in Revelation. Lord, thank you for this theme that you have throughout Scripture of providing good things for your people. And even though sin has broken this world and broken all of us, you continue to love us and continue to provide. You continue to make promises even to sinners like us, promises of forgiveness and redemption and life eternal, the life of paradise with you. God, today as we get ready to go to your table, allow us to freely confess our sins and trust in what you there offer. By your word and your supper, I pray that you would strengthen us for your service. I pray this in your holy name.